You're listening to Nine Plus, a research podcast from SETU Ireland. Welcome to Nine Plus, a podcast that captures conversations about research being conducted at the Southeast Technological University. I'm your host, Rob O'Connor, from the Department of Computing and Mathematics. But the podcast is transdisciplinary and we're open to producing pieces from all areas of study. In this episode, I'm speaking with the first of our colleagues from the Carlo campus to appear on the podcast. Dr. Noel Richardson has extensive experience in the area of men's health. He's the principal author of the first ever Irish National Policy on Men's Health, which was published in 2009, and the follow-up National Men's Action Plan in 2016. He's worked as a policy advisor on men's health at the HSE since 2005, and he's the co-author of the first EU report on men's health published in 2011. He's currently collaborating with the World Health Organization on writing a men's health strategy. His research interests include men's health policy, gender and health, mental health and suicide prevention in men. Prior to his academic career, Noel was an international athlete representing Ireland on numerous occasions in long distance running events. During the podcast, Noel speaks openly about his own health issues and how that's impacted his life, both professionally and personally. As you listen to the piece, you'll hear me stumbling to form questions on the fly because health policy is very much outside of my area of expertise. But I certainly learned something through the act of conversation with Noel, and I hope that you, as the listener, do so too. Now, without any further preamble, we'll begin by having Noel introduce himself. Yeah, Noel Richardson, I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Sport and Health Sciences. Um, and I'm co-director of Health Corps, which is a research group within the health sciences in Carlo. And Noel, am I right in saying you have a kind of an unusual division of work in in SETU in that you're part time for SETU, but you're also part time for the HSE? Yeah, well, I, I guess I'm my, my, I'm employed by SETU and have been, you know, most of my the last kind of twenty five years. Right. But the HSE buys out half of my time to work on kind of national men's health policy work. There's a few elements that I'm sure we'll get into. So my, my, my role is, is primarily focused on research with, with a focus on, on, on orientating towards a national men's health policy to support the implementation and evaluation of different kind of men's health research projects. So when you say half time, does that mean you do two and a half days a week and two and a half days a week. That's a really good question because, I mean, it started out like that and and it kind of wrecked my head a bit, you know what I mean? Mm. Because, like, research work never falls into that kind of neat, you know, separate categories. So now, for the the last number of years, I don't think of it that way. Um, I see it as as a research grant that buys out half my time. So a lot of the time I'm in Carlo, I'm working on work for the HSC and if I'm elsewhere, I'm working on stuff in Carlo. And it's also fair to say that a lot of my projects overlap. So if I look at, say, current PhD students, they're doing a lot of work that's that, that are linked to specific objectives from the National Men's Health Policy. So, so the boundaries are very blurred, and I think it's much better to have it that way. Okay, so you don't have to have put your HSE hat on today and then put your Carlo hat on tomorrow or your SETU hat on tomorrow. No, but there, there, there are specific occasions where I'm wearing one or the other. Yeah. But I'm also conscious of acknowledging the other role when, I, when I'm, you know, if I'm presenting in Carlo and something, I, I, I would often reference the fact that 
the work is also linked to the HSE. Do you know what I mean? So I, I see that, I see the two roles now as being very complement complementary, um, and I think one one kind of helps the other in, in lots of respects. Yeah. Yeah. So you're pulling in the kind of both pulling in the same direction. You might go off a little kind of tributary or path every exactly, now and again. But, exactly, but, yeah. But yeah, okay, like, that makes sense. Um, so would I be correct in saying your research areas are men's health, men's health policy, um, gender and health, mental health and suicide prevention? But they, would those be your kind of big areas? Yeah, so the, the, overarching, the overarching kind of area is kind of men, men's health and masculinities. Mm. And, and within that then there are certain kind of sub subtopics so I've done a lot of work, say, on health promotion work focused on what we might call hard-to-reach groups of men. So currently we're working, say, with traveller men, men in the construction industry, mm. farmers, and, and you know, other groups like that. So um, I've done a lot of work in, in suicide prevention, um, and I've also done a good bit of work in, on kind of what we might call capacity building around implementation of men's health policy. So developing different training programs and evaluating their, their impact um, for example, we have a programme at the moment training agricultural advisors on how to support farmers in relation to mental health. So that, that's that's tracking the impact of a training programme you know, over, over six, six to 12 months to see, you know, is it effective in, in upskilling ag advisors to be more proactive in supporting farmers' mental health? OK, well, could you describe how that works then? So let, let, let's take this as a, as a little case study in, in how, how uh, an advisory project operates. Well, this, this is a good example. This project is called On Firm Ground. Mm. And it started... Sorry, in Firm Ground, is it? On Firm Ground. Oh, On Firm Ground, sorry. Firm, f- firm, yeah. to take on that. But it started w- from a, a query that came through to Carlo from, from a third party. It was a member of, of the Department of, of Agriculture um, and they wanted to know, so they'd heard about our Engage National Men's Health Training Programme and they wondered was there any scope to, to develop some, something similar for ag advisors because they knew that ag advisors were seeing issues on the farm regularly, you know, with farmers in distress or, you know, depressed or whatever. And, and But ag advisors, even though they were, they were very well placed to, to have an, a, a positive influence in that situation, they, they, they weren't sure about how to go about it or whether they had the skills to do it. So anyway, to cut a long story short, we went and looked for funding. We got a Chagas four-year Walsh Fellowship um, we, we took on a, a really good student who's since is in America at the moment actually on a Fulbright scholarship Connor Hammersley um, so we, 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 we sourced the funding we developed um, a, a training programme rolled out a train the trainer programme for ag advisors who, who taught who delivered the programme to other ag advisors and we're currently evaluating that programme so, so our job in Carlo was to take responsibility for the the development of the program and the evaluation of the program, and it satisfied a need from a government department. Um, and interestingly enough, just this week on World Mental Health Day, um, Minister Hayden announced significant extra funding to expand this program to to broaden it out to vets and agri business and agri finance. In other words, anyone that has as a remit and engagement with farmers that they would be equipped with basic skills to support farmers' mental health. So you mentioned before you talked about on firm ground, which is an excellent name, by the way, uh, the, uh, the, that you talked about kind of hard to reach men's groups. And you mentioned travellers, uh, construction workers, farmers. So is this because of a an 
older view of masculinity I, I, I don't know what the, what the term is that I'm looking for but the kind of the old solitary fella who doesn't go to the doctor doesn't look after himself yeah. and then just basically just drops dead somewhere it's, is, it's is, that, is that too yeah. reductive now maybe, no, no, maybe no, no 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 it is I mean and I, we were constantly at pains to point out that hard to reach is not a very helpful term you know what I mean because it imposes a label on a on a target group that that's very often is isn't fair, you know, and it can be due to lots of other factors. Yeah. Um, so our our approach is that if if you engage with the target group properly, so in relation to Connor's work that I mentioned earlier, we did a lot of exploratory work initially, consulting with farmers, with ag advisors, with farm organisations. We collated all the findings from from that research. We engaged in a co-design process to develop the program. We got ag advisors on board to co-deliver the program with members from the HSE. So the model was very much a partnership, collaborative approach. Mm. Um, and Diana Van Dorn is doing work with farmers in Marks and Co-ops as a cardiovascular pr- prevention program. And before she started, people would have said to her, like, you're wasting your time, farmers won't engage. But her experience has been incredible. You know, she's got huge engagement and a lot of that is down to her her expertise and, and commitment to, to that area as well. So, 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 so the notion of hard to reach is is very flawed. And our our, our thesis is that if if you get the engagement piece right, and you go about in a spirit of collaboration and partnership, that these groups will engage and engage really enthusiastically. So hard to reach might be a uh, an untrue cliche. Or stereotype. Completely. I mean, National yeah. McGrath's work here in Waterford with men's sheds is the very same. Mm. This is an older cohort, you know, who, who many would think are set in their ways, that kind of alpha male mm. characteristics you talked about earlier. But I mean, they, they, there was overwhelming engagement in, in, in her Sheds for Life programme, which is a health promotion programme targeted for men in sheds. So when you say it's about the way that you engage, so what would have been the traditional way a message might have been communicated to this to, to, to a group and then how does that differ with on firm ground or that's a really life? good question Rob so I would say I would say the traditional approach has been kind of gender neutral or gender blind and by that I mean the approach of service providers was very much here's the programme here's the service like take it or leave it mm. um, but we know with a lot of men that there can be a reticence or a a lack of confidence or a lack of safety almost about engaging in programmes. There's a perception maybe that it's women's stuff, it doesn't belong to us, I'm too busy working. So our approach is, is to adopt, we would call it kind of gender-specific or strengths-based approaches. So, I mean, there's a lot of work done, say, with more traditional occupations like firemen or, or, or security forces and, and making it clear that, you know, unless you take care of your health, you can't fulfil your your role as a firefighter or as a farmer or as something else, you know what I mean? So it's adopting that kind of strengths-based approach and making it clear that health is men's business and that it's it's a manly thing to take responsibility and to, and to be proactive about your health rather than being seen as a kind of a sign of weakness or, or kind of having feminine connotations. But also, crucially, we're, we're trying to move towards, what, without getting overdoing the, the jargon here, but moving towards a gender transformative approach. And that is about changing the values and attitudes within the organisations in which men 
congregate when they work and play and socialise. So, for example, with the Department of Agriculture, 15 years ago when we went to the Department of Agriculture to talk about men's health, with our national men's health policy, their approach was, this is nothing to do with us, you know, health has nothing to do with us. And then we had this week with the announcement of 2.5 million for farmers' mental health. But that reflects a process of engagement over many years and persuading the institution, which is the Department of Agriculture, that, that farmers' health is really important and getting buy-in and building confidence with the partners through numerous programmes in the meantime. So that, that moves towards what I'd call a, to a gender-transformative approach where everyone buys in, the, the whole ethos and the whole culture within the institution, the Department of Agriculture, shifts significantly over that time. So it's not just about individual behaviours of farmers, it's about the whole cultural shift within agriculture that's really important. Right, I, I'm thinking off the cuff of my head here now, or off the top of my head. So I could be completely wrong in this. And maybe I am, maybe, maybe not. But is the idea that the, the universality of this is actually in the specifics? Okay, now, I know that's, that sounds like a complete oxymoron, right? But what I mean is that if you try to have a, 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 a general purpose solution, yeah. it, it's, it, you fall between too many stools. Uh, whereas when you have a targeted solution that speaks the language of a specific group, and let's say farmers, okay, uh, that targeted group or that, 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 that targeted intervention can be replicated in another targeted fashion with another, another group. For example, construction workers. The concept of trying to engage at the correct at the correct communication level is that I'm, I don't know how I'm actually supposed to trying to describe this uh, right okay I have, I have another way of putting this let's say I was being cynical and I said men's health sure why 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 are men so important is it not everyone's health but there's a set of specifics associated with men's health that are different to children's health or, you know, you, you'd be right like yeah. no, nobody is I'm certainly not suggesting that men's yeah. health is more important than women's health what I am saying is that it's about finding the right approach to engage most effectively with any target group yes and the same would equally apply for women and not, not just women but more specifically different subpopulations of women yeah, of course because yes. there are lots of there are lots of inequities in women's health there are lots of programs and services that certain population groups of women don't access. Mm. So th- that's what I mean. Without getting pedantic with language, as I said earlier, it's about having a gendered approach that recognises what, what's the best f- fit or what's the best approach for engaging a particular target group. And it's not like there's a formula that applies to each one. It's, it's much more kind of... It's much more kind of wholesome than that. Like, it's, it, it's about respectfully engaging with the the target group initially, like say the men in sheds, like Ashling started by going out and having cups of tea with men in sheds, yeah. asking them what their, what their experience of health services was like, what they would like if there was a potential programme, then coming back with a skeleton programme and tweaking it. So but by the time the programme happened, the, the men in sheds felt a sense of ownership in relation to the programme. They didn't feel it was something that was being foisted upon them. So that, that's what I mean about that, that process of partnership and collaboration yes. and, and, and respectfully engaging with any target group, men or women, is really important. It, it, that's actually 
what I was trying to get at. So it's not to say that the, the, the men's shed model, the, the, the program that comes up for men's shed can be applied to menopausal women or whoever, but that, that approach of engagement and uh, the specifics yeah. could possibly work for other groups. Oh, completely. Is, is that, is that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Rather than this general purpose, um, one size fits all model for, for everything. Yeah, no, definitely. That's, and and it's, it's, as I said, it's not that there's a magic formula for each target group. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, what's more important is that that, that, that spirit of, of collaboration and engagement and partnership, that, that that underpins the development of any programme. I think that's really important. Mm. So, right, okay, now I'm not trying to equate the two, but this is just because there's been so much about um, Black Lives Matter yeah. in the news over the last couple of years. And again, a lot of the cynics say I'm not trying to equate the I'm not trying to equate Black Lives Matter with 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 men's health okay uh, but but there, well, there might be well, some well, sort well, of equivalence I mean, there, there are overlaps yeah. before we go any further like in terms of race and gender like yes exactly yeah. so, so you know one of the the cries against Black Lives Matter and I'm not suggesting this I'm just repeating what has been said elsewhere is that oh no all lives matter mm. but that kind of negates the, to me anyway the, the message about Black Lives Matter that particularly in a social justice context in, in, in the US in particular nobody is saying all lives don't matter nobody is saying one group of people are more important than the other it's just saying that there's maybe a set of specific circumstances around this group that need to be aware that we need to be mindful of and, and, and unaware of and, and is that uh, but, something but, similar but, with engaging with but say, going back to what you just mentioned there I mean that, that perspective generally comes from a privileged white middle class perspective on the world yes. that doesn't really get the inequities that are in, endemic in, in certain population groups. Mm. So li- likewise, we've often made, made this point in say engaged training programs. If you're running a you know a retail outlet and nobody's coming to buy your produce, you don't say like what's why aren't the customers coming? You know what's wrong with the customers? You might reflect on, on what, you're, yeah. what you're selling or, or the price of it or whatever you're doing. And what we would say in men's health is as well, you know, if men aren't engaging with services or programmes, at, at least pay them the, the respect of asking their opinion about why they're not engaging. We're not saying there should be a separate canon of services for men, but, but at least try and identify how might that service or programme be at least tweaked or modified or... How could we engage with kind of champions in the workplace or in the community that might bring more men on board? Yeah. So it's 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 about it's about equity, really, you know, and trying to trying to ensure that the service or programs you provide are accessible to as many groups as possible. And sometimes that means tweaking or coming up with new programs or you know slightly different programs to engage a particular group. Mm. And it could be men or women. Or, or whoever. Or, or, or of different, uh, you know, other social demographics, yeah. Yeah, okay, right. I, c- I can see where that comes from. And when I talked about the universality, th- th- what I meant is the actual, the specifics of it are, are important. There's a, and, it's and all in the specifics. It's, it's, yeah, but, but that's what makes it kind of universal. Yeah. I, I, in that, oh, no, I'm not explaining this properly at all because I haven't thought it through. No, but, no. but it's that the, recognising the specifics is the first step towards universality. Do, do you know it what I mean? And, and, and you're right. Like, you know, just by, by asking the question, you, you're, mm. you're halfway there. You know, if you, if, you, if you start from the perspective that men aren't engaging, that's that's men's problems. Well, then you're never going to get beyond first base. Yeah. But if you ask why men aren't coming or why women aren't coming, 
or why black people aren't coming to service, at least you're starting to question the, the potential inequalities or challenges that are are potentially underpinning the, the, the reasons why this isn't happening. Exactly, yeah. So you're, you're kind of halfway there, I think. Yeah, okay. I can see where you're coming from and, and why, when you mentioned this, there's a long process. These, yeah. these things take time. But just going back to the notion of gender, because this is very hard to get across to service providers. Mm. And just to reiterate, like our work is never about trying to prioritise men as a population group ahead of women or children. Yeah. It's, it's about challenging more kind of traditional or unhelpful gender norms that sometimes mean that men get stuck in a place where they can't access services or they're afraid to seek help or support. Um, so it's about you know transforming attitudes and culture and value bases that, that, that support men and provide men with more supportive environments to take increased responsibility for their own health. Let's go all the way back to be- the beginning. Right. right, as to how you got to this, how, how you got to this point, because here you are now, so it's a, uh, working with the Men's Health Forum in Ireland, uh, you're also with the Global Action on Men's Health, yeah. uh, writing the national policy or being involved in the writing the national policy, um, lead, leading the research centre as well. But if I talk to 18 or 20, 21 year old Noel Richardson and I said all this to him, you know, talking about men's health, what would Noel Richardson, 18 year old Noel Richardson say back to me? That's a really good question. I mean, at some levels, that, that was n- never on the radar at that point. You know, yeah. I, I would never have envisioned I would end up working in, that, in, the, in this in the area I have. And I, my, my d- degree was in physical education in English, so I, I, I thought I might have ended up, you know, teaching in the school, for example. Yeah. And then I, at 19 and nearly 20, I joined the cadets in the army and I was commissioned a couple of years later. But in, in another way, th- th- I can trace back you know, really strong ties. Like, I mean, I, I often remember my, my, my father's generation, say, mm. and, the, and their approach to health. I mean, my father would have... Would, You're from a farming background. Farming background in Han yeah. in, in Limerick, yeah. But I've, I have a really strong memory of, of him frying, you know, cured bacon on a pan and putting lard in the pan to, <laughs> first and then <laughs> this, like, really fat bacon and then pouring milk into the pan that he would dip, dip his soda bread into it. Mm. But, uh, and I, I sound like I'm judging him now or blaming him, but it was just a different time, you know, where men didn't have any sense at all of what was needed for them to look after their own health. Mm. And it was a completely separate sphere, you know, it was women's business, had nothing to do with men, no sort of sense of awareness or priority in men's health. So, so, that, so that, that, that stuck with me from, from a long way back. And then when I was in the Defence Forces, I, I was conscious there was an ageing organisation there was an annual fitness test which wasn't really being implemented that well. So I engaged, I did my master's at that stage on a kind of health and fitness survey within the Defence Forces that helped to shape policy and practice in, you know, bringing in more kind of health-related aspects to training and mm. supporting guys and girls who didn't pass the fitness test to get, you know, to get fitter and that. So, you know, there were links there as well. So I, I think there was a curiosity around, the, if you like, the socialisation of men um, and the challenges that they faced about not, in, not being proactive or not ta- taking responsibility for their own health. So that, that was there from a long way back, I think. Mm. And you started your PhD, I'm going to say later in life. In that oh, yeah. you, you didn't do it straight. You, okay, so you're in the Defence Forces. You, you didn't go straight from one to the other. Um, so you started your PhD when you were, you were in your 30s. Late 30s, Late yeah. 30s. And, and you had a number of kind of small children as well. So yeah. what... 
what made you want to take that on? <laughs> Did you not have enough on your plate? <laughs> yeah, well, in another way, it was a good time to start because I had a set of life experiences at that stage that, that had made me somewhat wiser about what I wanted to do. I mean, I had a very clear notion in my head mm. by the time I did go and do it, why I wanted to do it. And I think essentially I wanted to, to have, to, to improve my skill set, to develop an, an area of specialism that I could make a contribution to. And it was an area that I felt passionate about and felt really strongly about. I felt there was, you know, real need for, for work to be done in that area. Um, and Eve had finished her PhD well at that stage, so it was my turn, <laughs> in a sense, you know. So, um, and I was very lucky then that I, 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 a job actually came up in the, funded by the Department of Health, so I, I was able to do my PhD in parallel with a research role. So I wasn't off like doing my lecturing nine to five and and going home at night to, to work my PhD. The the two kind of worked. I mean, there were differences, obviously, but but the two kind of worked very well together. So it was again like that thing about pulling on the one road. Yeah, so I've been at that for a while. Yeah, it yeah, seems. yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, can you? I asked this question of uh, the president of SETU in the last episode. Can you remember the title of your PhD thesis? Men's health practices in the construction of masculinities. Ah, oh, fair play to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair play to you. Um, right. So, so let's then go from drawing the link between, say, the academic research and practical implementation. So you're involved in writing the, the, the Irish national policy yeah. around men's health. Can you compare the, the experiences of studying the subject of men's health and researching the subject, but then trying to, to, to shape the practice of that subject? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and like one of the aspects of the work that I really enjoyed, even though it's probably the most challenging and sometimes frustrating, is engaging in that policy piece and trying to get buy-in from different agencies and, say, government departments in, in our case. Um, and that, that's incredibly challenging. And, and I went to talk once from Adrian Bowman, who, who, who supports Neve's work here in, in CTU Waterford, and he, he, he makes the point Sorry, about... that's your wife. Neve Murphy, Neve yeah. Murphy, yes, yes. Um, he makes the point that policy can take decades to, to have an impact. I won't go into the details of, of, of what he talked about, but, but that, 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 that to me is kind of is fascinating, you know, and how you, how you go to an agency like a government department who may initially have no leaning towards what you're asking them to do and you work over a period of, in our case, years to bring about, you know, to make inroads and to bring about change in that area. So, I mean, I think to, to go back to your question, I think the, the, having, having a, a grasp on the, the theory and the, the whole academic side of, in our case, men's health is hugely important to go with credibility to your policy partners and, and to make the pitch and to make the case and say, look, here's the evidence this is what's in it for you. This is this 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 is the, these are the benefits that can accrue from by engaging in in in, in supporting these policy measures. And very often that that, that won't find traction immediately. Mm. It might take you know five years or ten years. And I mentioned the Department of Agriculture is a good example earlier. So that 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 to me is really where where the where the work is at its most interesting and most exciting. Even though for a lot of people it's seen as something that's really frustrating and slow. 
but for me, like that, if I can make an impact at that level, I, I feel most fulfilled in my work. I think. There's a term I've seen used a good few times over the last while. It's becoming increasingly popular. Um, it's pracademic. Yeah. which I suppose kind of means to be an academic, but also a practitioner in yeah. the field, whatever that field might be. What do you think about that term? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't get too head up about the term, but I think the essence of it, there's a lot of value in it. And I mean, one of the things we've explored recently with Ashley McGrath's work on the men's sheds, um, she's focused a lot on implementation science. And, and I won't even try to... Just paraphrase what that is, but, but maybe in one or two sentences, she, she, she's trying to grapple with the notion of how do you go from, you know, the, the randomized control trial model to, to an organization like Sheds where you can't impose this kind of, this gold standard practice to, to an organization that, you know, simply wouldn't accept that, that approach. So it's, it's, it's about trying to find a way of, of blending the, the the good science with the practicalities of implementation in a real world setting, um, and the, and the messiness of that. So she makes a really good case in a couple of her papers about the need to for that partnership approach to engage men in sheds and and the organisation the Irish Men's Sheds Association as partners in the process. So rather than than imposing the randomised control trial model on the organisation, you're working in much more a partnership approach. Um, and so the, hence the notion of implementation science, mm. where you're blending the practical with the academic. And it's still still really good science. Uh, I would argue better science than taking this kind of artificial model that has uh, the randomised control trial model, which has got huge limitations in terms of subsequent scale up in a real world setting because it's done in much more kind of contrived or artificial conditions very often. Um, so I, I certainly really am very excited about the notion of of how we blend the, the academic with the practical mm. to come up with, you know, real solutions that are more sustainable um, and that are lend themselves much better to scale up. I was looking at a list of your publications uh, online, a stack of them, right? So I'm not going to go listing them all off, right? Okay, but there was one there that kind of just just caught my eye, maybe because I understood the terms that were all used, that was used in the title. And it was a parenting on the job. And it was a a chapter of a book, uh, Fathers in Parenting, which was published in uh, 2015. Uh, learn, learn, learning on the job, parenting in modern Ireland. Now, I haven't read this. Uh, I just saw the list of it online. Uh, can you remember the gist of what you wrote there? <laughs> and, any tips? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, uh, <laughs> it feels like a long, long time ago. I mean, a, a lot of what I wrote was about the, the invisibility of fathers yeah. in Ireland, you know, uh, in, even in terms of legislation and and so on, and a lot of what I wrote was about the the benefits of involved fatherhood for for the kids, for the wife partner, and for the for the fathers themselves. Mm. I mean, there's really really useful, um, really good evidence supporting the, that it's a kind of win win situation for everyone. That the more engaged a father is, in from from the earlier stages. Uh, in, in terms of nurturing and caring for his children, the more he's likely to, to be able to care and nurture himself. I think that's a really important message. 
Um, and the whole area of legislation, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, um, where legislation that supports fathers' involvement, you know, through parental leave and paternity leave, where that's embedded in, in, in legislation, that tends to have much better outcomes in terms of fathers' you know, involvement and engagement in their children's rearing, you know. So mm. there are some of the things that come to mind. So again, it's all following along the, or, or pulling in the one direction, like like what you said earlier, that it's all part of a, a continuum. Yeah. A, 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 you know, so, so parenting and men's health are not discrete. They're not discrete fields. They're not discrete studies. But they they're, do, they're they do, they do interlap. And, they, and they, it's they, another good example. You know, it's not about having more rights for fathers compared to mothers. Yeah. I mean, that, that's missing the point completely. Exactly, yeah. You know, it's, it's about instilling from a very early stage that fathers are have a, have a role, and an important role in, in, in rearing their children as well. And as a state, how we support that role is, is really important. And that there are benefits for everyone involved. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, it sends out a message that, you know, fathers need to roll up their sleeves and get involved in the every aspect of parenting. Like, you know, it's not all but yeah. nice photographs. Yeah. <laughs> as, as, you, as we will know, sorry. Right. You have studied, or you've supervised a number of PhD students as well. You mentioned Ashley McGrath uh, recently, who actually was a, a guest on this podcast last se- se- season. Uh, you have a very long publication list. In your opinion, what are the characteristics of a good researcher? Um, this is now maybe doesn't have to be discipline specific. Yeah, well, I, I, there's a couple of things I, I'd say are really important. I think the first thing is to be is to be passionate about your area and to question and keep questioning. You know what, what it is you're doing and why you're doing it, and and I mean this not, not just in relation to framing an initial research question for a project, but but constantly revisiting your approach. You know why am I using a certain methodology? You know, and at each stage of the research process, why is it going as it's going? You know, why is it not, if I expected something to happen, why isn't that not happening? So to be really curious, to question everything, um, and to be, you, I think you need to be driven and, and have a real passion for it because I don't think anyone gets involved in research for cushy hours. Or, or the money. <laughs> or, the, or the money, yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. Uh, I also think research, it's a skill that improves with practice. So, you know, there's nothing like doing and getting out there. So if, you, if you're contemplating getting involved in a PhD, I think a great first step is to volunteer on other projects that where you can pick up some skills and get used to the practice of researching. Um, and I think writing early is really important. Um, you know, the, the notion of, for me of a PhD where you, you, you collect your data for the first couple of years and then you write up in the final year, you know, I think that's balderdash, really. I think you're writing from very early stage. You're, you're critiquing the literature. You're, you know, writing whatever... Because, again, writing is a skill that improves with practice. Mm. And what I found also, as an, early, as an early career researcher especially, was to reach out to the so-called experts. I mean, I, in my first couple of weeks, I emailed people in Australia and Canada and the US. And, and, I, and they were, like, without exception, they, they were all really generous in, in trying to help and support me with what I was doing. So I would say don't sit in your little ivory tower in, in, in Waterford or Carlo or wherever you, your base, but you know, re- reach out to people and ask for guidance and support. They'd be some of the things I'd say. Yeah, the, the global aspect is very interesting because 
I mean, I know you've had a global career. You've you've kind of worked all over the place and you've travelled extensively uh, in your career. But I mean, surely, so men's health is obviously a, a particular field and it doesn't matter. You could be talking about molecular biology or spirituality. It doesn't matter what the field is, but you're, the pool in which you'll fish in your own geographical area is likely to be small. Yeah. But the global community is probably much larger. And there's no reason why you can't get involved. Is, is, would no, that be and, uh, and even more importantly than that, my, my, my experience is that people in international, internationally want to help and support, you know what I mean? Mm. And I've tried to reciprocate that as I've acquired more experience over the years. You know, if somebody reaches out, I, I generally do my best to signpost them to whatever papers or publications or, or, or you know, issues that I can to kind of get, get them on their way. Mm. So I think there's a genuine sense of, a, a spirit of, of community within researchers that, that they want to support one another and to guide and direct as, as far as possible. So definitely the world is a small place when it comes to research, I think. You kind of hit on mentorship a few times in this podcast. People have brought it up that, you know, about the, the, the value of, of a good mentor or mentors. Is there anyone who has inspired you along the way or maybe taught you a valuable lesson or gave you a valuable bit of advice along the way? You said, oh, yeah, that was really good. And who was that and what was the lesson? Yeah. You don't have to say the specifics of the person, no, but no, maybe no, what, no. Was the, what was the lesson that you learned? There's, there's, a, there's a few people that's... I mean, there's lots... There's, there's a couple of people I'd say in particular. Pat Duffy was a, was a really important mentor of mine. He was a lecturer of mine in college and coached me as an athlete for a number of years. Um, and I always saw him as somebody I would speak to about anything, including when I was th- thinking about a PhD, actually. He gave me some really good advice. So I just really respected Pat's wisdom and authenticity um, in, in guiding me at different junctions in my life was really important. Um, and more recently, I would say I've been really strongly influenced by a colleague who works for the Men's Development Network, Lorcan Brennan, um, who's an absolute inspiration in the work that he does in, 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 the, in the real practicalities of men's health. He's a facilitator of men's groups, uh, if I was to sum it up in one sentence. And he does it beautifully. You know, he's, he's the best I've seen anywhere in any part of the world, you know. And, and he's, such a, he's such a kind human being. Um, and, you know, if, you're, if I was to talk about being inspired by somebody, I would say Larkin is someone that I would really look up to and respect in so, in so much in that regard, yeah. You mentioned the uh, athletics and you have a significant athletic career, a distance runner, uh, 5,000, 10,000 marathon, am I correct in those yeah, kind that, of distances? That's right, yeah. um, all of those are, are, are long distances um, and now I know nothing about this really other than trunging around doing a 5k every now and again, but I believe competitive athletes, they need to be mindful of their pace uh, you don't want to kind of go off too early and blow yourself out but equally you don't want to go too slow so that you can't stay with the pack and, and, and finish in a, in a good position um, anyone involved in elite sport must have a significant amount of discipline I mean it, ju- it just must be inherent in, in, in the job with the benefit of hindsight are there any lessons that you can say you took into your, your, your professional career as in your research career from your athletic career your academic career from, yeah. your, from, from your uh, sorry, your academic career from your athletic career. Yeah, well, I I I, I would say that, like discipline is certainly one thing, 
and like de- dedication and being focused and and kind of tunnel visioned. Um, and I would say in a more kind of, I don't know, a more ex- existentialist kind of way, I would say um, the discipline of running and, and the, 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 the bank of, of fitness that I have from running has really stood me in good stead over the last 11, 12 years. I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Mm. Um, so I, I don't think I would be still working today if, if it wasn't for the what, what running has given me in terms of a base level of fitness and an outlook about, you know, always keep going and, you know, not not, not to kind of give up on things, you know, to, like to, 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 to deal with setbacks. Yeah. Um, and how we do that is really important. So I would say running, I, I owe a lot to running in, in how I live with Parkinson's nowadays. And I, like I had a hip replacement in February, but... Um, and people would have said, "Well, that, that's the end of his running now." But I'm, I'm back. <laughs> I'm back, running incredibly slowly now. But like, I, I really don't care, you know. Once I'm moving again, I, I was out in the canal in Kilkenny the other night and Wednesday night, and it's a beautiful evening. And I didn't care how slow or fast I was going. Mm. I still got the release of endorphins. So I, I, I think I, I, I'm really blessed to have had running, and I, I, just just to keep going, you know, it's really important. In the face of, of what could be a, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, you know Parkinson's will get worse. I know that, but for now at least, it's 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 really put, kept me in, in, in kept me really sane. I think in terms of dealing with it. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question about uh, one bit of advice for a, a novice researcher, but I think you've just kind of given it there, as in just keep going. Yeah, it sounds a bit cliche. Doesn't yeah, it? Um, sometimes cliches are cliches because they're true. Yeah, and it, like I, I should also maybe add as a caveat to that, that w- one of the learnings I've had is is to it's, I suppose it's about perspective, um, and you know when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's first, I I've, I I had set a number of goals like <laughs> two running sense, you know I I wasn't going to allow it to to inter- interfere, you know I was, I kind of set boundaries on how much it was going to interfere, and of course that that didn't work out very well. So one of the learnings is 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 about accepting that I don't have control over that, and which is essentially allowing kind of vulnerability and, but but equally important to kind of pull in the support of, of loved ones and family and and colleagues I should say as well, which is really important. You know what I mean? So part of the reason I'm still working is through the support of wonderful students and colleagues, who you know who've really stepped up to the plate and have been an amazing source of support. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm, on one level, I might be seen to be doing really well living with Parkinson's, but part of that journey is accepting that I, I'm vulnerable to it and I can't control it and that I need the support of, and help of family and friends. And that's a message, I suppose, that I would like to live in terms of men's health as well, that encourage other men not to be afraid to accept the support of loved ones and friends in, in dealing with any issue. Was that a difficult realisation for you to come to? Did, did did that take time? Was that a difficult lesson? To oh no, it was definitely definitely took time. Yeah, I, I definitely tried to kind of figure it out myself first and control it. But as soon as I kind of the penny dropped, that that was quite a flawed approach. Um, I, I think I've 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 grown in strength since by accepting that I I can't control it, and I'm I'm sitting here now and I'm, my, my body's kind of. Engaging in different jerky movements, which yeah. is one of the one of the side effects of medication, 
Um, and that's hard, you know, like you, you want to present a certain persona to the world and when that changes, yeah. it can be quite challenging. But but it's not my fault that that happens. Um, and I just keep saying that to myself. Um, and I'm just bowled over by the level of support I've received from Neve and family and colleagues and friends, as I said, so onwards and upwards. <laughs> Noel, thank you so much for chatting today uh, and for being very candid and being very, very open and honest with uh, particularly opening up about Parkinson's at the end. I hadn't planned on asking you about that, uh, but... Well, I, 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 I don't see it as, as being any less or more open than speaking about something else. I mean, it's a fact of mm. life. So many people get get worse news and I, I'm just conscious of in the 12 years I've had Parkinson's I've lost friends and yeah. others from, from cancer and other things. So um, it, it's just it's just what life throws at you and, and you know there's other challenges that people face so I don't I don't I don't see myself as deserving of any special accolades or anything for speaking out about it I think it's just a normal thing of life and just speak about how my, my personal experience of dealing with it and it's not to say that it's a blueprint for anybody else but it, if it helps somebody else that's great If somebody wanted to find out more about you uh, your publication list or get in touch what's the best way to do that? I must update my my <laughs> My uh, SETU publications, <laughs> I suppose ResearchGate or Orchid, everything's, everything's up to date on that, yeah. yeah. Or just email me in, in at setnoel.richardson, setu, and I can send on anything if people are interested. That's brilliant. Noel, thank you so much for speaking today. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, Rob. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nine Plus. We'll have another one coming soon. And of course, our back catalogue is there to dig into in the meantime, if you haven't heard them already. If you'd like info on future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Nine Plus Podcast. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can leave us a glowing review on the podcast listening platform of your choice. Okay, talk again soon.